0: right hook podcast make business sense on the road with the mitsubishi outlander business the two-seater suv with low bik
1: 200 euro vrt and a five-year warranty mitsubishi motors.ie now to start the show this evening, Donald Trump outscores Adolf Hitler on a test used to determine psychopathic traits. Oxford University research psychologist Dr. Kevin Dutton ranked the psychopathic traits of the U.S. presidential hopeful and other historical figures using the standard psychometric tool, the Psychopathic Personality Inventory. Uh, Dr. Kevin Dutton from the University of Oxford is on the line now. Welcome to the program, uh, Dr. Dutton. Good
0: afternoon, Tara.
1: First of all. Paul, how uh, is this psychometric tool developed? What kind of traits would you find on this psychopathic checklist?
0: Well, it's true, isn't it? When most people hear the word psychopath, they instantly think of uh, Hannibal Lecter or in real life Ted Bundy and serial killers like that. But actually, when uh, psychologists like myself talk about psychopaths, we're actually referring to uh, a specific group of individuals with a distinct subset uh, of personality characteristics, such as ruthlessness, fearlessness, Uh, Self-confidence, focus, coolness under pressure, mental toughness, charm, charisma, uh, and, and of course those, those trademark deficits in empathy and conscience that, that you hear so much about. So the psychopathic personality is not all about killing people or, be, or, or that kind of thing. Mm. It's actually in a, in a, in a scientific setting, in a, in a scientific arena, it's a collection of characteristics uh, of the kind that I've just outlined for you there.
1: So, uh, in your assessment, Trump scored 171. That was beating Hitler's 169. How How are these scores calculated and evaluated?
0: Uh, Well, what I did was um, I've got a a psychometric measure of the psychopathic personality, which can be used within the general population. There are different tests that are used within forensic populations. This is one specifically nuanced to use in the general population. And what I did was um, I, um, well, for the presidential candidates, I got um, a well-respected and seasoned BBC uh, news anchor, um, who 's had a lot of experience with the uh, with the different candidates um, to fill it out on their behalf okay. uh, with the uh, historical figures who are uh, dead, um, What I did there was I contacted um, official biographers. Um, very well-respected writers who, who have studied these people for absolutely years, know their um, personalities inside out, and got them to fill it out on behalf of their subjects. And uh, just a little bit about the psychometric test. Um, it contains, you obviously get a total score, which is what we were just talking about, um, but there are also embedded within it eight different subscales relating to those personality characteristics such as ruthlessness, fearless, etc., uh, that I was just telling you about.
1: Right. Okay. so you concede that, obviously, because you didn't have first-hand access to the candidates or indeed the historical figures, which included Henry VIII and Idi Amin, uh, as well as Hitler and a few others. There's a little bit of a margin of error here. You accept that.
0: Uh, there is a little bit of margin of error, yeah, and absolutely right. Um, the, you know, and I've come out and, and uh, been very explicit about that. There's also, uh, I think it's, it's fair to say, uh, a margin of error as well if people fill in questionnaires themselves, because, sure. of course, they, c- they can always be emotionally biased, especially if they know, <laughs> you know that the test is something that's assessing psychopathic characteristics.
1: <laughs> absolutely. Um, so what, what number, then, on your scale, do you officially become a psychopath?
0: Well there isn't an official number actually Tara that, 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 that as a cut off this particular test doesn't have uh, a cut off but what I would say the, the idea of of whether you're a psychopath or whether you're not is not an all or, or nothing black or white affair but rather we're all on the kind of what we call a psychopathic spectrum along which each of us have our place and I would say that um just you know a rough arbitrary number on this particular test, I would say if you 're looking around the one hundred and fifty one fifty five mark you 're looking at someone there who's veering towards the the sharp end of the spectrum. The maximum you can score is two hundred and twenty four mm-hmm. but I would say if you 're looking at around one fifty 150, one fifty five arbitrary figure. You're looking at someone who's who's going into the red zone on the psychopath rev counter.
2: Okay.
1: How early in somebody's life could you start to see psychopathic tendencies being displayed? Is it something that's very obvious from childhood or is it something that maybe develops uh, with growing confidence, I suppose, uh, or power later in life?
0: Yeah, it is something that uh, appears to be um, uh, recognized very early on. uh, Children as young as four or five um, uh, um, display certain characteristics. I mean, all kids, don't get me wrong, all kids are on the naughty spectrum. But these particular kids, uh, which have uh, so-called callous and unemotional traits, um, uh, do seem to stand apart from other kids who are just regularly naughty. So they, they, will, um, they will torture animals, for instance. They will uh, be extremely manip- manipulative. They will be extremely bullying. Uh, they are pathological uh, and rather accomplished liars even at that kind of age. So they're very good at covering their tracks at that age, and they can be extremely cruel Um, uh, And so, yeah, those those kinds of differences do manifest themselves at a relatively early age, sometimes as early as four or five.
1: Okay, now let's get back to uh, Donald Trump. Let's get back to Hitler, Saddam Hussein, as I said, Idi Amin, Henry VIII, uh, Hillary Clinton. Is there something that draws individuals with psychopathic tendencies towards leadership roles uh, or political roles in particular?
0: I think you're absolutely right, Tara. I mean, let's, let's talk about the kind of skill set that you might need to, to be a world leader, okay? So uh, you're going to need to be able to make tough decisions, tough calls under quite a lot of pressure. You're going to need to face crises ranging from, uh, I don't know, rogue nation states to natural disasters. Uh, as we've just seen in Italy, for instance, you might have to send the young men and women of your country uh, to war, Uh, in the certain knowledge that they're going to lose their lives. You're going to need brilliant self-presentation skills, the ability to to feign empathy, even if you don't feel it. I think it was Teddy Roosevelt who once said, the most successful politician is he who says what the people are thinking most often and in the loudest voice. You're going to need supreme self-confidence to run for office in the first place, unrelenting focus and self-belief to implement policy, and also, of course, considerable... Uh, ruthlessness and mental toughness to deal with those people who have it in for you. Um, You know, he has to remain nameless as one senior British politician uh who i was, who i spoke to once said kevin the only way to tell who's stabbing you in the back in politics is to see their reflection in the eyes of the person who's stabbing you from the front uh which is a pretty bad uh, a sad reflection on, on, on uh, political life but very very true and we you know over in the uk we've just seen with brexit you don't need too much uh, reminding of that so yeah in terms of uh you know success in politics to be honest, Tara, I mean, all the headlines are screaming out at the moment, Donald Trump higher than Hitler in, uh, in in the psychopath stakes, and there are reasons for that. But actually, it's really no surprise that any top politician is going to be relatively high on the psychopathic spectrum because those traits, uh, those characteristics I've just outlined for you there, um, are not necessarily all a problem in itself. The problem starts to come when they are dialed up at the wrong levels in the wrong context.
1: Mm. Um, So Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, both scoring pretty highly. In your assessment of um, their scores and their potential leadership abilities, if you were voting in November, who would probably be the, if I can put it this way, the least harmful psychopath to choose? Well, I wouldn't...
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can see the, I can see my career at Oxford disappearing there, Tara, as you were asking that question. Um, I wouldn't say either of them. I wouldn't go so far as to say either of them are psychopath. and I've never said that. Okay. What I would say is that both are high on the psychopathic spectrum for reasons which I said aren't, aren't much as a surprise. Yeah. Um, their highest traits, incidentally, are uh, both very, very persuasive. Um, Donald uh, and Hillary both scoring very high on social, what we call social influence and persuasion, both also very high on what we call Machiavellian egocentricity. Uh, that kind of almost narcissistic egocentrism that you need to be the centre of attention. Uh, Donald Trump uh, was uh, high on the cold-heartedness scale, a little bit higher than Hillary on the cold-heartedness scale, but that is where, if you compare the the cold-heartedness scales of, say, Donald Trump and Adolf Hitler, Hitler absolutely um, uh, streaks away with it there. Hitler, very, very, very cold-hearted, almost scoring a maximum on Mm. cold-heartedness. So Donald Trump didn't measure up to Hitler on that particular scale. Uh, but really, between Donald and Hillary, you know, everyone's making a kind of a case, you know, Donald Trump is, is high on the psychopathic spectrum. Actually, it was pretty much nip and tuck between uh, Donald and Hillary, because you have to wait. the way this particular questionnaire is measured, you do have to have a gender weighting slightly. So uh, um, normative scores for women tend to be uh, slightly lower than that for men. So, you know, if you take Wh- that into consideration...
1: Why, why is that? Why, why that gender difference?
0: Well, there's a. Do you, you know what? To be honest, we really don't know definitive reasons. There is a, a, a neuropsychological, a, a sociological, and also a, de, a developmental reason. Uh, women uh, or girls, rather, for instance, are, uh, tend to brought up to be less aggressive, less competitive than boys. It's a general kind of
1: hormonal uh, trend, maybe
0: trend. You see, it could be yes, absolutely. There is a, there is that's the neurobiological. It, there, you know, there are evidence for, for increased testosterone levels. Um, in aggressive psychopaths. So so it's a, conf- it's a conflation of things really but the main point here, Tara, is if you actually take that sort of gender weighting into consideration, you know what, there's not much between Donald and Hillary. Both high on the spectrum but it's exactly what you might expect in a US presidential race or even a, a, you know um, an election here in the UK. Uh,
1: yeah, any sort of political dogfight. Of course you know, psychopathic tendencies are not unique to uh, potential political wannabes. Uh, the general population clearly, as you've outlined, have them too. There are certain roles that you seem to think uh, have more people in them with psychopathic tendencies. Uh, CEOs, for example, which again, I suppose reasons into those difficult decisions, the self-presentation skills, the self-confidence. Civil service was one that I was somewhat surprised by, I have to be honest. Uh, And I'm a journalist and I work in radio and I apparently get a double whammy.
0: Yeah, well, journalists, uh, people that work in the media. Yeah, um, well, civil servants. I think the reason that they are because I mean, no one really knows what a civil servant is, and that was one of the problems with that particular study that I did. Actually, I Probably. think <laughs> I, I better think, not, you know, they I better not say what
1: was on the tip of my tongue.
0: No, I know what you're going to. I knew you were going <laughs> to say you're better. That would be your career down the drain there, as well as mine. But I think there's two. I think I think there's two different arguments here, Chara. I think that one is that psychopathic characteristics characteristics can get you up the ladder. Uh, the other is that psychopathic characteristics can actually help you be good at your job. And the two don't always go together. I don't think it's going to come as too much as a surprise to, to your listeners that it's possible to lie and cheat and brag and manipulate your way up the ladder if you don't have the, the natural talent that your job requires. But what I think is much more interesting and may well come as a surprise is that if you do have the requisite skill set, then certain psychopathic characteristics can actually help you capitalize Uh, on your natural ability in various professional arenas. I mean, let me give an example. Imagine you've got the skill set to be a top surgeon, for instance, but you lack the ability to emotionally disengage from the person that you're operating on. It's possibly not going to work. I've interviewed a great many surgeons who say, you know, as soon as you start, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, identifying with a person that you're operating on as someone's son or daughter or or wife or husband, you are walking an emotional tightrope that can cloud your decision making yes. um, in terms of split-second decisions. Perhaps if things go wrong, I'll give you another example. Imagine you've got the skill set to be a great lawyer, um, but that you lack that almost pathological self-confidence to be the centre of attention in the middle of a packed courtroom. Again, it's not going to work, is it? Let's take business. Imagine you've got the uh, the strategic and financial smarts to be a top business person, but that you lack the. The, the ruthlessness to fire someone if they're underperforming. Now, those traits, those characteristics I've just outlined for you there, ruthlessness, self-confidence, emotional detachment, are all psychopathic characteristics that work for you in the right settings. When it starts getting dangerous and when it starts getting toxic, when you start ruining your life and other people's lives, is when those dials remain up high but not in the correct context.
1: Okay. Uh, Yeah. And just if I may, to finish off, uh, in in, in the same way, the surgeon has to be dispassionate, I suppose, about who he's operating on the table. Maybe if I may just offer the defence that journalists also have to be somewhat dispassionate about the the stories they're covering and, you know, the sometimes awful, horrendous situations and personal tragedies that you would encounter in the course of your work too.
0: I think that's a very, very good point. uh, I have a friend of mine who's actually a, a war photographer uh, and you can imagine the kinds of things that he witnesses um, and he has to, you know, there are times in his professional life when the dilemma between prevention and getting involved and actually just doing your job dispassionately that line is a hideously difficult one to to draw.
1: Yeah, Uh, very good. Uh, Dr. Kevin Dutton, research psychologist at the University of Oxford. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this evening. Thank you very much. The Right
0: Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic with sporty
3: paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie
1: Now, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on education and skills, Carol Nolan, has called on Minister John Halligan to intervene urgently in the cases where students are potentially being denied school transport after previously receiving a place. To answer this call, I'm delighted now to be joined on the line by John Halligan, Minister of State for Training, Skills and Innovation, and of course, Independent Deputy for Waterford. John, you're very welcome to The Right thank oh, Thanks, it's a pleasure. So, let me get this straight, because obviously as a Dublin dweller, rural school transport and the issue of concessions is not something that I'm in any way personally okay. familiar with. So we have a situation, am I correct in saying, John Halligan, where you might have uh, students who live in, a say, village A and right. they don't go to school in village, v, village B, they go to school a little further afield. Yep. And up to this point, they've had places on school buses, they've been in receipt of the concession, and now they're at risk of losing that.
3: I'll explain exactly uh, how it works. The purpose, first of all, of the scheme is is, is to support the transport to and from school uh, of children who who reside uh, uh, remotely, if you like, from the nearest school. In other words, they must choose the school that's nearest. Now, I have some difficulty with that, to be quite frank with you. Um, I believe that a parent should be able to choose the school. But as it is, that's the scheme. The problem we're having at present is that... um, Uh, We have a number of what they call uh, uh, outside the the children that are eligible for the scheme. There are then, if there are spaces on the bus, uh, what they call concessionary places. Mm -hmm. The difficulty with the concessionary places, and this is what we're finding at present, is that, um, by the way, there's uh, there's in the region of 113,000 children, 10,000 children with special needs, 4,000 vehicles each day. Um, So it's a complicated and complex scheme. And uh, uh, I think in the region of £170 a year, it's costing to run the scheme. But anyway, to get back to uh, what I was saying, um, um, the difficulty is that uh, the scheme was originally set out for children that are eligible for the scheme. But when a bus is not full, concessionaries are available to go on the bus. I um, have found, and by the way, I'm only in this job a few months, that the difficulty arising was that when more children became eligible to go on the bus, that concessionaries more or less had to step aside and to allow the, uh, um, the eligible children to go on the bus. Okay. That's what the difficulty is at present. Okay. What I can say is that what I have asked for, and um, I spoke to um, um, the Sinn Féin TD, I spoke to her yesterday on the phone uh, in detail, and what I've, what I've asked for, I've asked for a review um, some months back. The review has taken place at present. As part of that review, I've also asked that are represented from each party in the all come in and be part of that review, particularly on the concessionary uh, charges and the difficulty we are having with concessionaries um, um, either losing a seat on the bus or not being able to get a seat on the bus. That's what the difficulty is at present.
1: So, Carol Nolan seems to be under the impression, and I mean, obviously, I'm not at liberty as to what you guys discussed in your phone conversation yesterday, but Carol Nolan still still seems to be convinced that a large number of children are now literally, and in fact, my own son started back in school today. So, we're we're not even talking about next week or or the end of next week. It was always the 1st of September, but now schools are going back so much earlier. And at this late stage, Carol Nolan seems to be suggesting that children who up to now and maybe are in third year, fourth year, sixth year, and have been attending a particular school and have been in uh, receipt of those concessionary places, are now faced with a choice of leaving that school and going to a different school entirely and leaving their, their peer group and their friends and their teachers and the structures that they have in their daily life, uh, or having to be brought to school probably by their parents or by other means.
3: Well, I'm not going to argue this point. I accept that. Um, as I say the scheme was set out originally for children that were eligible that's children who reside remotely from their nearest school Um, and the difficulty was that um, uh, uh, like some buses did not uh, um, um, have the necessary amount of children eligible children so concessionaries were taken on the buses as more and more children start to avail of the scheme uh, the difficulty then became that um, uh, there was a problem with concessionaries and remember that. Essentially, uh, my reading of the scheme, and I came on board and just uh, con- continued to review this scheme, is that the scheme was for children that were eligible, not, chi- not concessionary children in the first place. Right. However, the, po- the fact remains that a number, and I don't know the number of concessionary children right now, there's a new review in place, that uh, 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 many concessionary uh, kids are using that scheme. I don't like the idea that they would be removed from busses. Um, And this is why I've asked for this review. And by the way, the review, uh, it is in the programme for government that all of the concessionary charges, the rules uh, of of the the element of school transport prior to budget 2017. And what I've asked for, and it will be done, will be to review the criteria and guidelines for, for instance, the school transport appeals board. um, um, um Carol will have a, a, an opportunity as a, a representative from Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, Féin Gael, uh, all members of the Dáil to be part of that review to see where we can go forward and how we can uh, deal uh, with the problems of children that may be losing their seats on buses.
1: With all due respect, Minister John Halligan, and I appreciate you're new enough to the role and that, you know, you wanted to get answers, you wanted to have this review, but is the timing of this review not a bit Irish? To be having this process underway, with the net result that literally in the days before people are due to go to school, that they are under threat of losing their places on a bus, would it not have been better? And I appreciate, ministers are criticised constantly for lack of action, and not doing things uh, speedily enough, you know, and you, you, you certainly seem to be taking the bull by the horns in this regard, but would it not in this instance have been a little bit better to have that review somewhat later in the year so that there was plenty of time for parents, for children, for the bus drivers, for everybody involved all of those stakeholders who you've outlined to have plenty of time to have their ducks in a row for next September Good
3: question and I do my best to answer it Uh, When I took the job on as I say a number of months ago, not too long ago um, I began to realise that there was a problem uh, with the, uh, uh, the scheme for bringing children to school, no question about that The problems were bus routes, uh, availability of buses, where buses could not use some routes. I actually brought in Bus Aaron to speak to Bus Aaron on that issue. Um, It is a very short period of time because I've only been in the job a number of months. In my opinion, opinion, um, and I know that this was a problem way back in the last number of years, as being an opposition member of the Dáil, I think a review should have probably been carried out maybe a year ago. But I did initiate this review within one month, of coming into, uh, uh, coming into the position that I'm in. I've been upfront and honest. I've answered anybody that sent me an email, and I can tell you I've had nearly a 1,000 emails from across the country. There is a serious problem. There is no question about that. Can I solve that problem on my own? I can't. The review will include bus Aaron It will include uh, members of uh, my staff that deal uh, with, the, with the transport system, and it will include every member, uh, every party in the Dáil who will have a say as to how this should be carried out. I would say this, I would say this. Um, The scheme was reduced uh, by the previous government, not the government that I'm a part of, but Fianna Fáil, Uh, um, it was reduced in 2008. For us to add extra buses, and we have to be cognizant of this fact, that it it, it is estimated that if we were to take all the concessionaries at present on board we could be talking about substantial increase in funding um, i would prefer i understand that kids need to go to school but i would prefer that if there was funding available for education that the funding would be made available in the classroom that we should concentrate on maybe the children that are eligible going to school not excluding those that are on concessionaries but if you could, i have to say to you again that uh, the scheme when it was set up was not set up for concessionary kids. It was set up for children that were eligible sure. for the scheme. But having said that, I am not happy that uh, kids that would have been on a bus last year may have to be taken off a bus next year. And that's the objective of this review that I've asked to be carried out. Right, Minister.
1: But with your respect, you didn't actually answer my question, which was about the timing of this review. Would it not have been wiser to have this review a little later into the 2016-2017 academic year so that... Parents and all of those who are actually going to be on the sharp edge of this wedge would have had more time to get their heads around well, no, what actually, to do. I'll
3: tell you why, because we have a budget coming up shortly and the, my, my idea of having this re- review is to have the review before the budget so that if it required more money uh, to make this uh, a better scheme and all schemes can be improved, that here was the opportunity to do it before the budget. So that um, uh, after the review, and we get a, when we get a consensus and we get practical suggestions from someone, uh, from, from everyone that's part of this review, and maybe if it requires an extra extra funding, uh, that that funding may be available in the budget. So I think this is the appropriate time to have the review before the budget. Otherwise, if we leave this review later in the year, we will have missed the budget, where we may be able to get extra funding into the transport scheme for, for kids going to
1: school. Okay, all right. Just I appreciate that you you've stated on the record that you do firmly believe that parents have the right to send their children to schools that are maybe a little bit further away and that they have that right to choose what they believe is the best is the best school for for their child. As I said, my son started secondary today. I spent so much time over the summer organizing privately between other parents in that school a bus route because there isn't a, a state s- a service in the area and the school I've chosen is outside of the area where I live. Is it not, if parents want to have that choice then, John Halligan, that they need to step up to the plate and actually organise the transport themselves in the same way that I and fellow parents of, of the school my child is going to have done?
3: Well, the preferred option for me would be, and I suppose any member of government is going to say it or any member of opposition would be that if a child needs to get to A to B, wherever the school is, whether it's the, whether it's the nearest school or the school of the parent's choice, that if there is a difficulty with the family uh, in in bringing the child to that school, the two parents may be working, they may not have a car, uh, There may be a a difficult route, that the state should step in and do that. The problem there is that you're talking about an an astronomical amount of extra money to do that. In the meantime, I understand and I realise and I recognise in my own constituency that that's what parents are doing, that they're Mm. helping other kids get to school by car. Is that ideal? It probably isn't ideal in the sense that Um, I think we should make every effort, uh, 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 the state, that is, should make every effort to make sure that every child, particularly in primary school education, that at the very least, before they even begin to get the education, that they can get to school to get that education. that there should not be a stumbling block of not being able to reach that school, all right, well, very, even if it's a school of their choice.
1: All right, very good. John Halligan, I just want to quickly ask you about something else. We had figures yesterday which showed, from daft.ie, which showed yet again huge rental increases in the second quarter of this year in terms of residential rent increases. In June, you said there were a sizable minority of landlords who were essentially screwing people and uh, were making money from people's misery uh, with regards to the homeless crisis and you guaranteed you'd take them on and that if needs be uh, any found to be uh, doing wrong would be jailed. What's your response now having seen those uh, again another rent rise yesterday?
3: I, I, did, I did take them on and I did make statements and I'd been contacted and criticised for making statements. I don't think any fair-minded person can say that uh, rent is exorbitant particularly in apartments. Um, if you were being asked to pay €1,200 Euro a month, €1,400 Euro a month, which could, as, it could quite easily be half of your wages, that doesn't seem to be fair to me. It appears to me because there are less spaces uh, that landlords now know that more and more people will pay above the average. And I actually think, and I know I'm a member of government and I am going to attempt to do this, will it succeed? I don't know, that we should be able to bring some sort of rent uh, re- uh, uh, regulation in rent. Why would we do this? We would do this because it gives people a chance to have a quality of life.
1: Right, but the experts we heard from yesterday, uh, John Halligan, were sort of saying actually that's not the right approach at all, that in actual fact there is a situation that very many landlords are in, that they are essentially overtaxed and that the government is the one that is taking the largest part of the pie when it comes to uh, the income that's garnered from rental property.
3: Well, you see, that may very well be the case. Well, let's examine that and uh, let's see where we go from there but the fact still remains the fact remains that i know people living in one bedroom apartments two bedroom apartments paying exorbitant amount of money 800 euro 900 euro 1000 euro 1200 euro there has to be an explanation
1: as to why that is the case. Well, the landlords are saying it's the taxation element. Well, of it. that's why. That's We're what they're too, saying. I, I'm,
3: you know, I'm not and too sure was, about that. Well, that was
1: backed up. It was backed up by many of the of, of, of our texters to the program yesterday, who are landlords, and they're not in it. They don't have you know a, a shed load of properties. They might have one uh, one house, and 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 they're saying that we had one gentleman yesterday saying he'd be quite happy with rental of two of twelve hundred a month on his three bedroom house, but in order for the figures to work out for him, he would have to charge two grand a month.
3: Well, what we should certainly do then, if that's the case, Tara, is we should see exactly what tax. Let's determine uh, a landlord that's charging uh, 1600 a month or 1200 a month or 1400 a month to one person or two people in an apartment. What tax he is paying No, that?
1: And as you, uh, you, as a member of government, you will commit now on the airwaves that you will uh, raise this issue and, ha- and attempt Absolutely. to have this addressed? Absolutely. I
3: mean, if I say something, I do it. And I've already uh, 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 said it. Uh, First of all, I, as a TD, before I'm a minister, I deal with uh, one of the the, the greatest problems we have in all of the offices I have in Waterford are people unable to get accommodation, Uh, whether it be private accommodation, uh, local authority accommodation, or rented accommodation. And the amount of people that come into me and tell me that they're just not able to afford what has been asked for by the landlord. And by the way, um, you know that... unless we do an assessment, and I suppose I I am saying we, as being a member of this government, we certainly now have to start doing an assessment. I have to tell you, 40,000 rented properties were taken out of the rented uh, business in the last few years. So there are fewer and fewer rented properties. But we must do an assessment as to how many rented properties are available the cost of renting these the properties. Can we bring in some form of re- 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 uh, regulation that would include reasonable tax to the landlord if it's the case that the landlord is paying too much tax because of, uh, uh, of owning a property that he's renting out to people? And I think all of this should be done um, coolly, calmly and collectively. But the fact remains that we are excluding very, very many people from being able to uh, rent a property. When they can't rent a property, they can't, certainly can't buy a, a property if you if you 're in a rented accommodation paying one thousand four hundred a month, the chances of you saving to buy a private house are negligible. Mm. also, we have so many people on the local authority waiting list so um I think we need to get get together with landlords. We need to find out if what they 're saying is accurate i 'm not doubting that they're, what they 're saying is not accurate but let 's uh, uh do an assessment of what rent they 're charging and what areas they're charging the rent. How does it compare right across europe um it is unacceptable to me that rent would go up 5%, 10%, 20% and to blame that we're paying too much tax. But let's tease that one out and see if that's the case.
1: All right, very good. Uh, John Halligan, just very finally, uh, Pat Hickey, we're expecting to hear from Rio uh, as to when he may be in front of a judge. Can I get your thoughts on the controversy? And indeed, there's been a lot of criticism of uh, of this review that has been announced by Minister Shane Ross last week.
3: Well, I think, like in fairness to Shane... He was asked, would there be a review, an independent review? There will be a review. I think it's 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 deplorable and depressing uh, to think that um, we had athletes uh, in Rio where families were finding it difficult to get tickets. One question I probably would ask, um, and I don't know if Shane has asked this or anybody else, I mean, I think we should do an assessment as to how many tickets were made available um, um, and let people account for the tickets that they gave out to see where the tickets went. I think that would be a good start. I think that's
1: what what the authorities in Rio are actually getting to the bottom of, whereas we're talking about... We
3: certainly should do it here. We should... uh, um, uh, Whoever was given tickets um, from the Olympic Council, uh, we should find out how many tickets were given. Did they go to uh, everyone appropriately, which they probably did. I'm not saying they didn't. Making that quite clear. But would that not clear the air to know where the tickets went and did the people that needed tickets and should have gotten tickets to go to Rio uh, uh, get tickets? Apparently that's not the case. People on the airwaves and your own programs and other programs during the week, where some people have to go to the
1: Norwegian authorities yeah. to try and find tickets, which is outrageous. So, where yeah, well, what I mean, I like well, to... transparency in Ireland, John Halligan, you know, you have to put it, and what? you know, we've got to be very aware of the fact that this wouldn't be coming, we wouldn't be talking about this at all if it hadn't been for the authorities in Brazil.
3: Absolutely not, and you're 100% right. So, I think that you know, this review needs to be done quick. Uh, an independent review, but part of it should be, in my estimation, as an assessment as to how many tickets were allocated. Where did the tickets go? Because if we are listening, and I know I'm restating what I said a few minutes ago, if we are listening to families who were saying they could not get tickets, why is that the case? And let's find out where did the, how many tickets were allocated. Where does the tickets go? And let everybody be accountable as to who they gave the tickets to.
1: Alright, very good. John Halligan, Minister of State for Training Skills and Innovation, and of course, uh, as you say so yourself, your first job, independent <laughs> TD for Waterford. Thanks very much for joining us Bye, on so the hook. Take
3: care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi
0: Outlander seven seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear
3: changes at your fingertips. Mitsubishi Motors
1: Now, from iPads and phones at the dinner table to arguments over what Netflix show is on in the background, mealtimes are becoming a tech minefield. Research published by Dolmio has revealed that technology has become a huge barrier to Irish family connection during mealtimes. And in a world where we're more connected than ever, it seems we're increasingly disconnected and distracted from those closest to us. John Sharry is the CEO of the Parents Plus charity. He's also a senior lecturer at the UCD School of Psychology working with Dolmio to advise parents concerned about so-called tech disruption, particularly at the dinner table. This survey, John, two thirds of the parents who responded said that technology has a negative impact on dinner time. So what is it that's causing this negative impact? Why is it so problematic?
2: Well, I think I think the main issue for parents are like and the research actually matches my own experience as a clinician working with families uh, when I run groups with parents and and I asked asked our number one concern technology now comes up there right up there they're worried that their teenagers and children on it too much they worry that it's they're they're like distracted by it they're worried that it's just disrupting family life so so parents are very concerned about it um, and and what interesting in the in the survey as well the Domia survey is that actually half of the parents say they, they didn't know they felt powerless to stop it they almost felt like it was they were invaded and there's nothing they can do about it but of course there's lots they can do about it there's lots you can do to 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 change that situation
1: yeah and we'll we'll come to that in a moment mm. again from from the clinician's point of view what are some of those negative impacts because it's not just a case maybe of sitting around the dinner table and everyone is on their individual Mm. device and they're not actually talking but there clearly must be wider, Mm. longer term uh, effects.
2: Well, uh, they... they main issue for me is is that uh, for fam- families to really function or for parents to be parents to their children they need they need this uh, warm open connected relationship so you need to be talking to your children, children need to be talking to you uh, and that's one of the most enjoyable aspects of parenting, you get to know their world they get to know your world, there's a connection not only is it really enjoyable it's also how you influence your children, how you bring them up, how you know when things are concerning them when things are disrupt- uh, not doing, going well in their life so you can help them and support them now, what's happening in very, very busy lives and everyone under pressure is these moments of connection are getting squeezed uh, between lots of different things uh, and technology is one of them people are coming home busy from work they're exhausted so rather than talking to one another they relax in front of the TV our teens are coming there's stuff on their mind they're stressed about school so they go on the internet or talk you know, inter- interact with their outside group in or internet group rather than with their parents and mm. that's a worry so, so what I'm very interested in preserving or encouraging family to preserve is, is having this connection time or quality conversational time between parents and children one real opportunity to do that is meal times. That's the traditional way, isn't it? The, the old ancient way, sitting down, people sit, they relax, they talk, they chat, they argue, but they're interrelating inter- inter- one another. And a big invasion part of that is the technology, which is further reducing this opportunity for time, but also bringing up rows. Then people are fighting over it. So for that reason, it's a good thing to try to address.
1: I mean, we, we would have had clearly a, a tradition of sitting around for family meal mm. times in this country, maybe not as strong as it would be. And we'll still see it in France and in mm. Italy in particular, the two countries that come to mind. It's not just technology, though, as you rightly say, people are coming in and out at different times, mm. you know, between school, homework, work, uh, heading off to soccer, heading off to ballet or GAA or whatever it is. Do we actually even really sit down together at all at the dinner table, John?
2: Well, well, these are the issues. Like, like I, I think dinner is one opportunity. But what I, when I'm working with families, my first question is to them, when do you have a moment of connection in the day with your children or with your partner or with each other? Uh,
1: you might get a grunt from the back seat of the car occasionally. Might,
2: but you might get a grunt. And a lot of people say the car is one of those times. In fact, uh, it might be a grunt. But I asked them when do you get the most enjoyable time? And it could be walking to school, going to school in the car, it could be a chat at bedtime. Uh, it could be the mealtime, as we're talking about today. But what I say to parents, you need to preserve those. They, they are the most important things in your parenting. Is, you're right in busy lives, people pressure schedules, you were like ships in the night. But actually, that's not good enough. Like, if we want to be real families that are supportive, connected, and helping children and parents, you need to ring fence those times and make them a bit more. Um, and one way you can do that is through routine and ritual that's the best way to do it is have a routine of when you connect which is mealtime as one or bedtime or a chat and if you get routine going it's far easier because everybody knows this is what happens do you know what I mean? uh, so good routines is often the key
1: yeah I, I technology addiction though it's not just a problem clearly at meal times or even you know in the sitting room yeah. i think even in my own my own family I don't know the last time that the telly was actually turned on because they're all on their individual <laughs> yeah, devices yeah. and they have headphones on. Now, yeah. I mean, I have rules around it. They have to be in a public space. They have to be mm-hmm. downstairs, not up in their rooms or whatever, because that's uh, what I'm hearing from experts is, is is partly the way you should do it. But technology addiction, though, in itself, mm-hmm. I mean, we've done items on this programme in the last mm-hmm. few days where we've spoken about um D- disconnection when it comes to socialising and mm-hmm. social lives. We've done uh, how it is harming, <coughs> according to studies uh, and anecdotal evidence, how it's um, harming people's sex lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's 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 all becoming a bit blade runner,
2: isn't it? It is, absolutely. There is all these harmful effects. Now, I, I don't want to be just all down on technology. There's huge benefits, of course, education, learning, and also social connection. And I know per, I work with parents... And, and one way we'd help them connect with teenagers is they sell, send these lovely texts to one another and they're all good things or they share an interest in some programme or TV thing. But there are dangers, uh, as you say, the, a bit like blade, a Blade Runner uh, the, and there is addiction and it ha- does have harm. Uh, um, I've worked with lots of teenagers who, and family members who are addicted to technology and it's very disruptive. They might lose their ability to socialise, they become depressed or they become anxious, they start disrupting their sleep. They're they're into all sorts of things, looking on the internet, pornography and so forth, and causing great harm to their general well-being. And and Uh,
1: the irony being, John, is that they feel so connected, or we all do. It's not just, let's call a spade a spade, it's not all about teenagers either. Uh, We all feel so connected with our, you know, hundreds of friends that we have or our followers on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever. And yet we've probably never been more disconnected from actual real face-to-face personal relationships.
2: That's that's the double-edged sword uh, uh, here, and in some ways, uh, the relations that really matter to people when the chips are down are the real close family, intimate, uh, home relationships, not the ones. You're, you're I don't know many of the Facebook friends will will <laughs> will be there when you really need them, so to speak. So, so I think these are all all the challenges. That's why why I think we need to counterbalance that. You need to try to think. Well, the main focus in my day is the thing I really want to make sure I do is connect with my nearest and dearest face-to-face in conversation, spending time and listening and put a few of those experiences in the day the other stuff will be keep under pressure uh, on you All the other, uh, but it's not the real stuff and you highlighted this is for a couple of adult, adults and parents Yeah exactly and I wanted to same. ask about that because yeah.
1: I'm, I'm a, a great believer in that old saying monkey see monkey do mm. is it a case that uh, quite often parents are guilty of roaring and shouting at the kids or mm. you know giving them lectures for want of a better word about their use of technology whether it be in at the dinner table or elsewhere and yet they're kind of guilty of yeah, themselves and I know I am I'm ha- yeah. holding my hand up there and
2: it's, it's usually 50-50 uh, uh, between parents and children follow their parents so it's really parents have to take a leadership and show uh, like, and, and that can be a really helpful way of engaging in a conversation with your children about this or Tina listen I find it a bit hard myself to give up the the laptop because it's so engaging and put it down for dinner but I'm going to give it a go will you help me let's make a deal together that we make mealtime precious together And, and children like that approach they don't like to be older children in particular don't like to be barked at or made to feel that they're somehow mad for doing this but actually we're both we're we're both trying to do this for the sake of our family is 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 the mm. way to is the way to go.
1: Is it realistic though, and bearing in mind what we've just discussed about you know b- busy hectic lives mm. and and social lives and school lives and work lives, is it realistic that you would be looking to sit down for dinner every day? I mean, would, is once or twice a week even sufficient to try and have that you, time?
2: Yeah, uh, families are very uh, families are very different, uh, and what works in one family is is is, is uh, works for uh, it works differently in another. So like uh, it's not the mealtime to be all nailed on. It is nice. for people can start like to aim for one family night that's a nice one to aim for just to start I know some families who introduce that and it makes an enormous difference for when they've older children and everybody really prioritised Thursday night or is when they come together they take a rote and who cooks they have a family game they have a chat they watch something together after or something you know so it's seen as a big deal and that endures as a ritual and at least they've preserved that Is there really time for that though? Well, you see, you see, you have to. Or you take, have to make the effort. You have to make, make the time. effort. Like, like, it, this is all about value. Like, like, the most biggest tragedy in life for me working people is like they're very busy, 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 and all this pressures. And then when you sit the chips down, are you doing really what you really want and what's most important to you? And they aren't. Do, yeah. when I ask them and get, put them in a calm room with a bit of space what's really important what really matter, what would you like what would give you the most satisfaction that you've done today they really said that I answered that they really say I wish I'd answered more emails I wish I'd been more on Snapchat yeah. they usually say I wish i talked a bit more to my child I wish I'd spent, listened to my husband, my partner. I wish I'd spent some time cuddling, listening to my partner <laughs> and so forth. Uh, they, they prioritise, I wish I'd gone for that walk with my daughter around the block and we just had a little chat about the day. They're the things they say matter most. So it's, it's, it's just a, we disconnect with what matters most to us.
1: What about uh, technology and, and even TVs in bedrooms?
2: Well I think overall oh, and kitchens actually yeah. for that
1: matter because an awful lot of people have a TV going in the background yeah. constantly in yeah. the kitchen.
2: Well overall I would think as a, like if you wanted to, to two very good habits to get to is they're very simple changes one is no technology at mealtimes that's one and number two is none in the bedrooms and none after a certain time at night because yeah, bedrooms is meant to, meant to be a relaxing way of sleeping and that's usually also a point where people connect like a parent usually reads a story with a small child well, a night. small child now. you yeah.
1: wouldn't be going in reading to well, your when, 13 year old when
2: I uh, ask teenagers <laughs> and the teen and the parents when they connect they often say late at night Mom has a little chat uh, they sit on the bedside they come in have a chat uh, like the the team might not, uh, you know uh, but that's the time when this happens so uh, that's when partners hopefully have a time to connect in a traditional way at night time together so uh, but it's not it's not over when they're both on the laptop uh, uh, and so forth so True. so so their good their good habit ritual rules is um, no technology at night not at meals, t- and not at meal times so if you get that that you'd be making a lot of progress.
1: Are we sometimes a little soft? Are parents sometimes a little soft in terms? I mean, you mentioned rituals and routine. Yeah. Do we sometimes forget that maybe we need to have rules there too?
2: Yeah, no, no, I agree. Rules uh, uh, are, are absolutely important, but rules and routines are sort of the same thing. Just uh, routines makes it a habitual rule, a habitual rule. Uh, so, so, they're the same things.
1: But what I'm getting at is is sometimes do we have a reluctance to actually enforce, enforce them. them and call them out and yeah. go actually do you know what you're not allowed technology at the at yeah. the breakfast table or the dinner yeah. table yeah. or wherever it is, in the back of the car wherever.
2: Absolutely, so you call out the rule now, and I help parents with strategies to enforce that because a lot of people back off from the rule because they get resistance or conflict and they can't yeah. handle it uh, so I say you, you persist gently with the rule remember what we agreed about no technology at the dinner and you just enforce it if the teenager or the child objects or gets abusive, then you say, if you don't agree... Put it away now; you'll lose it tomorrow. So you follow through with very gentle that, that's Consequences.
1: One of the, sorry to interrupt you, but that's yeah. one of the one of the what I found most uh, interesting aspects of this um, of this survey was that almost half of the Irish families who responded felt like they'd no way of stopping mm. this use of technology at the yeah. tables. Yeah,
2: that's very from my point of view. That's very worrying. That in a way and in ways it makes me want to to say that there's loads of very simple things you can do to uh, change this by having a rule setting first getting agreement having a rule gently following through having consequences and insisting and what happens when you do that and keep the rule and routine follow through with the teenager you feel great as a parent you feel my god I've done it the teen feels great actually that, pe- that dad and mum have actually stood up to them and been consistent they very much respect that they mightn't think they mightn't give you a <laughs> hug they mightn't <laughs> hug and say that's amazing but they think Fair, you know he, he knows what he's doing. Once you don't do it aggressively in an undermining way, what happens is parents usually snap. They usually say, "Get those technologies was yourself. What the hell you lazy they They do that, and then they undermine themselves mm-hmm. uh, and their authority. rather than this gentle, persistent, but holding the teen to account with agreement they've made for their benefit, that type of uh, persistent parent with a degree of authority, that's very inspiring to teenagers and they respect that.
1: OK, I'll take your word for that. I only have a, a young teenager at this point in time. So far, he's, he's, he's playing the ball well. Um, in terms of the amount of time that children yeah. and even, look, ourselves, in terms of the amount of time that they should or shouldn't be spending on devices, what, what would be your guidelines and advice there?
2: Well, I, I'm, I'm quite reluctant to give very absolute guidelines on this because each each uh, child is different, each family is different. And it really depends on what they're doing on the technology. Like sometimes people are using the laptop for homework. That's fine. Some people are using it for an educational programme that their share with their parent for example you might watch a bit of tv a tv program like uh that you love uh, one of the soaps or a, a x factor and it becomes a source of chat and connection between you and your son or you and your daughter that's a good use of technology there's nothing wrong with that one do you do, know do what i mean but that's different than two hours by themselves uh, on on snapchat do you do, know do, do what i mean so yeah. so i think you have to understand what technology is for but certainly limit it Uh, When they're little, as little as possible. When they're preschoolers uh, 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 and when they're uh, primary school children, a certain amount uh, a day or just an amount at the weekend uh, is fine. And then with teenagers, you want them to self-regulate around a a small amount a day and let them uh, choose when they do that. But of course, you make those times dependent on good behaviour. Uh, if they are disruptive or or if they get aggressive when they have to come off the technology, I always say, well, um, you only get the privilege of technology if you put it away in a happy jolly way. If you otherwise, you lose it tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> well,
1: my three children are in big trouble when I get home tonight. John Sherry, CEO of Parents Plus Charity and also Senior Lecturer at the UCD School of Psychology.
0: The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear. Changes at your fingertips.
3: Mitsubishi Motors.ie.
1: Now, by now, many students have accepted their first round of CAO offers. And are readying themselves for the first year of college ahead. Of course, going to college means they're going to encounter a range of expenses that they wouldn't have had to deal with otherwise. And that may prove a little overwhelming, to say the least, particularly for first-time students. I'm joined on the line now by Graunia McGuinness, who's the personal finance correspondent with the Irish Examiner, to talk about some of the... Essential and sometimes maybe obvious that don't seem very obvious tips that can actually help students survive the year ahead of them. Uh, Gronya, firstly, is being student particularly expensive, or is it just that they're not maybe very savvy with money, or is it a combination of both?
4: Well, I mean I think it is very expensive to be, to be fair to students um, certainly if uh, for a student living away from home, I think it's been calculated that uh, the cost of the, of the average college year now is about. Um, somewhere between 10 and 12,000. It's about 11,000. So if you consider a student who's working full time and either not in work or only working part time, then you know it certainly is costly. But that said, you know the students' union um, will tell us that every year they see students run into difficulty that could have been avoided, you know, by by being sensible and 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 being managing the money from the start. So it's a mixture of the both problems that arise.
1: And that 10 to 12K average figure that you've given me, yeah, mm-hmm. i I'm presuming that includes things like rent, feeding yourself, utility bills, <laughs> exactly. transport. Uh, and how much of that do we know is actually covered by the students themselves or is it mum and dad forking uh, forking out?
4: Oh, I'd say for an awful lot of, of undergraduates, they're, they're definitely relying on their parents and in some cases for the grant. But even the grant, the, the best grant you can get, say the most you can get, and that's if you're living more than forty-five miles away from the college, and you're getting a hundred percent grant, you'll get a three thousand euro student contribution charge, which I've included in that eleven thousand, and you'll get another three thousand towards your living expenses. Right. Now that so there's there's still definitely a shortfall, and in the vast majority of cases, it's either the parents are making it up, or students are taking out loans more and more as well. So I mean, if if, if a student, whether it's coming from the grant, the parents, or from themselves going into debt for it they really just do need to
1: to manage it as carefully as they can. Now, combination of grandparents, uh, debt, what about working? Well, I mean, the advice is, the advice always is
4: to students is not to work any more than they absolutely have to. Because obviously, if you're a full-time student, then your primary commitment should be to to your course. But at the same time, as we know, like a full-time student hours in college aren't that onerous. It might be 20, 25 hours a week. It could be less for some courses. Mm. So, you know, certainly to, to work part time and alleviate some of that cost would be helpful if they can. But finding a job is, is a problem too, where you've got a lot of students, you'll have a lot of people looking for the same type of job, same type of hours.
1: Yeah, that's true, I suppose, and the hours, of course, and the hours of availability have to be factored in, as, of course, does the social aspect of it too, which is, you know, it is a huge part of social life, or of student life, rather, and it's an important one too. Um, Talk to me, though, about what you believe are the most important things from a financial point of view that students should know before they are heading off to college.
4: Well, I suppose the absolute most important thing, I think, is that it's for students and their parents to have a very good idea of, one, what it's going to cost, and two, how much money the students have access to. So, as I said, it could be a combination of several. You know, the the student could have hopes of getting a part-time job. They could be getting the grant. Their parents could be giving them an allowance. But they really need to put it together so in total from everything, this X is what I'm going to have to spend.
1: So a basic budgeting plan and the first rule of that obviously is is, is know what your income is, what you have to play with.
4: Exactly, what you have to play with, what you have to survive on from now until the end of of next May. That's the most basic. Then out of that you have to take the absolute non-negotiables. So how much you're going to have to spend on rent, how much are the bills going to work out at, how much you're going to have to spend on travel. So I really feel that students should take that money and put it aside separately from any money they may have then to manage on a weekly, weekly basis for when it comes to food and the socializing and all the rest. Mm. I mean, the rent has to be paid. The bills have to be paid. So make sure that that, that money isn't eaten into through freshers week or rag week or, you know, an, a too enthusiastic start to the social scene in college.
1: Yeah. So you've done your basic budget, but then you're maybe looking at a figure, uh, which, you know, for a student, for somebody who's just maybe left secondary school, they're looking at a figure and it could be in the region of five or six grand and they're going, well, hey, and it's all kind of gone really, really quickly. So break it down in, in, in the monthly installments that you need. Maybe can you look at something like or should you be looking at something like if you can pay for your travel over the, you know, get, get, getting a yearly travel pass rather than monthly ones? Does that help? Any any of the major bills that, that you can take away, you
4: know what I mean, that you can take out of the way earlier on in, in the year and it means that you know what's left is, is yours to play around with is beneficial. I even suggested um, that particularly in first year, there are accommodation options that include, say, all the bills, so the energy, the Wi-Fi, the bins, all the rest of it. included in the rent particularly on-campus accommodation and i think that's one option that maybe particularly in first year parents and students could consider because often for for people living away from home the first time they are prepared for okay the rent is x amount but they're not prepared the fact that every second month an energy bill is coming through that the wi-fi has to be paid the bin charges they're just not used to that kind of drip drip of money Mm. so you know maybe in first year if if all of that could be in one figure that would be a help. Then after that, certainly, I mean, your student leap card, you can apply for things like that to get those big expenses sorted from the
1: start. Sure. Another thing that strikes me, Gronya is if you've got people who are essentially moving out of home for the first time, they're kind of used to having their laundry done, maybe, and their food cooked for them, and certainly the area of food and feeding themselves. And, of course... I don't mean to to generalise and tar every student with the same brush, but they'd be quite fond of the Chinese and the pizza, whereas in actual fact, they could be saving an awful lot of money if they did their shopping and cooked their own food from scratch.
4: Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. And I I mean, we can't really, you can't really blame 17-year-olds if they're coming from home where there's always been a fully stocked fridge and there's always been a meal on the table, you know, in the evening, which there has in many cases... They can't be. They can't be expected to be used to managing with everything different, anything different. So it does come as a shock, and we we see it every year. And I can completely understand. I can remember my own college days. Certainly in the first couple of weeks, where there's a chipper on every corner, and lots of so it's so easy to fall into the rut of going for takeaways even going to the the student restaurants where there's what seems to be fairly cheap food, Mm. but even cheap food is much more expensive than what you will cook for yourself. Mm. So what I would suggest is, you know, parents and students now in the next couple of weeks, you know, drill them into the routine of, you know, on a Sunday night or even every second Sunday night, you know, once a fortnight, go and do your big shop, get all the basics, have a full fridge so there's no excuse to call for the chipper on the way home from college and just get in the habit. Learn half a dozen simple, inexpensive recipes. I mean, your stir fries and... Spaghetti bolognese and that kind of thing,
2: and just get into the of yeah,
4: exactly. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be a a full roast dinner from the start, but but simple, quick recipes that they can cook themselves. And there's really no excuse for a seventeen or eighteen year old not being able to manage any of them. And one thing I would always suggest is also suggest is either be it with um, your housemates or friends that you have from secondary school that are going to the same college as you, maybe start cooking together you know, yeah. everyone take a turn. I'm cooking tonight, you're cooking tomorrow night, you know, because cooking for one can be, it's, it's more boring, you're less inclined to make an effort to yeah. cook a full dinner and it is also more expensive. Yeah. So if, if there's a group of four of you and each of you takes a turn at doing a full dinner one night a week, the other three you get your dinner put up in front of you.
1: Yeah, I know. I remember my brother moved to Germany at around about that age and he was living on his own for the first time. I think for the first two years he lived on a pot of stew that he made every Monday and then just dug into every day for the rest of the week. I want to ask you, gronya about student loans, because you mentioned, you know, part of the funding uh, that many students rely on is is loans. How cost effective are they or otherwise?
4: Well, I mean, there, there are reduced rates for students. And actually, what we've seen this year is that the, the, re, the reduced rate loans are actually only for students rather than for parents, whereas previously in the past, certainly AIB and Bank of Ireland, would have had loan products aimed at specifically at parents. So if you didn't want your child to have to take on the debt in, in their name, you could specify that this loan was for the purposes of education and you could um you, you could take on the debt yourself. Whereas now if a parent wants to do it, it's just at the standard personal rate, whereas there are reduced rates there for students. But I mean the students will still have to get a guarantor obviously in, in virtually every case. Yeah. Um so student loans, as I said, there are maybe I think about two to three percent cheaper than the standard personal rate. So you're talking less than ten percent, but there is, you know, there is still a significant cost to them. Absolutely, and
1: it and it adds to the to the monthly outlay as well in in terms of exactly. repaying them as well. Exactly. You see a lot, and not just at this time of the year. You know, throughout the the college year, you see a lot of uh, student deals and special offers for students. Are, are they actually um, attractive, or do they sometimes oversell and underdeliver?
4: I think, to be honest, I think student offers generally are good and I definitely would recommend students to go out and take advantage of as many discounts as they can because, you know, once you start working and that that lovely student card is gone, you know, a lot of them will disappear and what a lot of um, businesses are doing is they are making rates attractive purely in order to get students in, in order to have them for life. I mean, the banks um, the long-term student loans, the full loans, talking about the loans that you'll be taking for your um, your student contribution charge and for living expenses aren't that much cheaper. But the banks will have deals on the actual student current accounts. So whether that's a student credit card that uh, you don't have to have any income to, to apply for, or AIB mm. a bank of, and Ulster Bank both have interest-free overdrafts. You know, there are things there that you can take advantage of, but be careful of them. Don't yeah. don't be taking on debt just for the sake of
1: it. Yeah, particularly that's that credit card sounds, oh, I, I, I wouldn't want that in the hand of my, you know, 18 or 19 year old, I don't think, let alone a 17 year old. Finally, Gráinne, any advice if a student does find themselves getting into financial difficulty? They maybe haven't done their budgeting or they haven't done it properly and they just have no money. What, where do they go to there apart from the bank of mum and dad?
4: Apart from the bank of mum and dad, there is a student assistant fund, assistance fund that is, that is available to help students that get into temporary difficulties. And I would definitely advise any student to turn to them if, if they are in difficulty. Now, the assistance fund isn't to get you into college, so you have to have registered and paid your student contribution charge. It's not to cover those costs. That's, that's the grant. But if along the way you find yourself struggling, you can, you can apply through each individual college has their own application form but you can apply for help and it can be for, for a very broad range of things. It can, be, it can be if you fall behind in the rent, it can be if, if you need travel costs, if you need help with covering your books. Also, if something unexpected happens through the year, you know, if, if a student is in an accident or if there's a family bereavement or some other emergency, even a medical emergency, the Student Assistance Fund can help in, the, in these situations. And what I would suggest uh, students do is go to their local students' union and they'll be talked there through the application process.
1: All right, very good. Uh, Grony McGuinness, personal finance correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Thanks for talking us through uh, the wrongs and rights and where's and why for's of uh, student financial life. Thanks very much.